The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions or make comments about the show during the program at hashtag Big Beacon. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers any anymore. And uh, today, it's a delight to be joined by a professor of uh, English at, at Rhodes College, uh, Scott Neustock. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks, David. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, and and in a moment we're going to talk about um, some of your uh, writing in the Chronicle and elsewhere. But you're a scholar, a professor, and and a public intellectual, and we're going to talk about some of your thoughts about the nature of education and how it's the same or how it's changed. But let's go back in the time machine. What are some of the early influences that put you on your current path? Well, I think I think if you ask any educator, actually, if you ask any human being, if they've ever had a good teacher, everyone will, can name many people that have been very powerful influences on them. So I, I can think of dozens of great teachers that I've had, but I think I'm also especially fortunate to have come from a family of great teachers. My, mm. Both of my grandfathers were uh, teachers in, in small schools in Minnesota. In fact, one of my grandfathers was the first Minnesota teacher of the year. He was an agriculture teacher and uh, and really valued that the close environment that he had in his classroom working with his students. My, I have a number of aunts and uncles that are teachers, and my father was a, a professor of business management as well. So I've, I've been really blessed in, in terms of growing up around a lot of people that care about learning and have thought really hard about different ways that people learn at different stages in their life. So I I, again, I, I think everyone can, can cite many, many terrific teachers they've had. I'm, I'm lucky to have had so many within my own family along the way. In, in terms of thinking about uh, education today in the world, I, I think one of the pivotal moments for me was the birth of my daughter, my first daughter a decade ago, mm-hmm. when uh, I think thoughts that had been percolating in the back of my head about the history of education and the, and the state of education started to uh, co- coalesce and, and feel more pressing in terms of thinking about what I cared about in the world and how I wanted to help her 
live the fullest possible life as well as uh, as, as develop in, into an active citizen in the world. So I would, on, on both ends, I guess I would say my, my family has had a powerful influence on me in terms of my thinking about education, both in terms of those who came before me and now as I've made the transition into parenting and and uh, and thinking about what I want for my children and what I want for all children in the in the world. So um, I think I, I think those would be the kind of two frameworks I would give you in terms of uh, pivotal moments in in my thinking about learning. Yeah, I'm just curious. Uh, so it sounds like the birth of your um, daughter was an important moment. What what was um, what changed for you, or what uh, um, what did you notice upon her birth that what thoughts started to enter your mind at that well, point? I think the, um, I think the, I, I think the, it's it's easy to think about teaching in the abstract when um, you aren't really that connected to a particular mm. newborn creature that is that is yep. about to um, join the human experience. So I think that it, it really crystallized the sense of the fact that every moment that a child is interacting with the world, they're learning all kinds of things um, in, in all kinds of environments along the way. And that, of course, learning doesn't just happen in schools. It happens um, in the home and it happens in, in the world. Um, but I guess the it, it helped me articulate to myself and, and uh, to my spouse, you know, what it was that we really valued about learning and what were the best kinds of ways to help inspire that kind of learning in our, in our, in our child. So, um, you know, one one thing that I think became clear to us as we were moving ahead with uh, uh, with parenting her was that we wanted her to introduce her to really fantastic stories that are very enduring. Um, and so, uh, at an early age, maybe she was four or five, um, we had a group of her friends and classmates who got together to do a, a big project around the story of the Odyssey, mm. and um, and it was a kind of a project that was meant to be artistic and, and performative, and they were doing, reading different versions of the story, and they were reenacting it in different ways, and it kind of culminated nice. in a, a scene that they produced together, a series of scenes, uh, episodes from the Odyssey, and, and we ended up performing it in our front yard, and there were people that were passing by on the street that were asking what was going on, and we were saying, oh, they're doing this version of the Odyssey. They were, these adults <laughs> were, were asking us this question, and they they were really intrigued, and they came up, and they were starting to interact with the kids. And it, it was that moment, I think, where the kids also realized that this was a, a multi-generational story, something that c- could connect different people at, at different stages in their lives. And so, I mean, that's just a small anecdote of a Beautiful. way that yeah. I think that thinking about the kind of legacy of what you're handing forward to the next generation um, makes it makes the, makes the priorities about how you can best convey that um, more clear as you as you as you move forward. So I. I think that's helped me clarify my own teaching in the college classroom as well as my own um, concerns about uh, primary and secondary education uh, nice. across the spectrum. Yeah, and thanks for sharing that that personal anecdote. And, and on this program, we're also interested in the, the, my first question and then this question are sometimes interrelated, but we're interested in what in uh, a whole new engineer Mark Somerville and I call unleashing experiences in which either someone's had – uh, courage on their own or been trusted by someone to have the courage to do something that they might not otherwise have done. And so I'm um, wondering what, uh, as you look back on, on your career, what, uh, what, who trusted you or when did you mm-hmm. trust yourself to do something that was really hard to do? 
and I, I, I can think of a number of moments in, in even back as far as junior high and high school mm. where I had some really extraordinary teachers who, who gave me that kind of trust in uh, a theater production to, to take on theater lighting on my own or in uh, a Spanish class, a really extraordinary teacher who passed away recently, Senorito O'Brien, who was just really committed to learning seriously and, and deeply in a, in, a, in a powerfully structured environment that enabled uh, her students to become autonomous. And I think that that's one of the, uh, something I'd like, to, I hope that, hope that we can talk about that kind of interesting dynamic where uh, structure and autonomy are not necessarily antagonistic. In fact, in the, in the best circumstances, a, a good structure can uh, in, create autonomy and, and create the opportunities for autonomy that, um, that we want the best learning to entail. So I can, I, I think of a lot of great teachers that really transform me at, a, at an early, you know, preteen, teenager stage to, to realize like, wow, it's really exciting to think about caring this much about a topic and knowing this much about it, um, whether that was Spanish or whether that was biology or whether that was English literature. Um, it's just to see an adult that really was consumed by something, cared about something deeply, and could also see the connections between their field of study and, and the other kinds of inquiries that we were, we were having across our, our school. So I, I can, I'm, again, I think we can all think about marvelous teachers who just kind of embodied that liveliness of mind. And, and those are the ones that I have often kind of called upon in my head when I've, when I've been thinking about my own teaching and wanting to convey that excitement to another generation of, of students. Yeah, so it's so interesting when people tell their unleashing stories. They they, mm-hmm. they come in different flavors. Sometimes they're the positive ones with positive right. trust, and then sometimes they're negative ones where there was distrust, and the person knew that they had to had to go their own way, and they found it inside themselves. It's so interesting mm-hmm. to hear whether it's that more supportive kind that that is more safe versus the uh, the more challenging kind where somebody almost distrusts you and you know, nope, I have to go mm-hmm. do this. And, and uh, so it's so it, the diversity of, of the things that people talk about is so interesting. And, and I would absolutely want to come back to the point that you mentioned along the way of the, the, there's so many, and I, I, that's one of the things I really liked about reading a few of your public pieces that uh, there's a, there's a deep respect for the many polarities of of education in them, and and the autonomy, the, the freedom, freedom and autonomy and structure and discipline are is is uh, is a central one that that came through loud and clear. But I, I, th- I absolutely want us to get mm-hmm. back there. But this show became aware of your public writing in a recent piece in the Chronicle, uh, Thinking Like Shakespeare, and uh, it was a lovely piece, and uh, I hope our, some of our listeners will go go back and read it. But but uh, what was that piece about, and what inspired you to write it? Well, it's, I mean, it, the piece is really about my whole teaching philosophy that's trying to be condensed <laughs> into what, what, was, what was one speech at the time. I was, I was honored by my colleagues and my students last spring with a, a teaching award here at Rhodes College in, in Memphis, where I'm a, a professor of English. And so the nice thing about the award is you get the public recognition, and then the obligation that's attached to the award is that you are expected to deliver uh, a speech to the incoming first-year class, uh, the incoming first-year students at the college. So it, uh, over, over the summer, at, between, the, between the award and the events of the convocation, I, I really spent the whole summer thinking about all of these things that, that we're talking about here, my concerns about um, the status of uh, primary and secondary education, the, the long history of education in the liberal arts. And at a, at a certain point, I started to think that if, if you were to take Shakespeare as a, an example, not necessarily the only example or the model, sure. 
but as an example of someone whose education was very different than uh, educational trends are today, that that might actually be a clarifying um, moment to help articulate some of the downfalls of where education is today and some of the virtues of of an older education. Um, I was very clear about saying that there are many things about Shakespearean education, 16th century education, that we rightly find repugnant. It was, a, it was very tedious. It was long. It was sometimes 11, 12 hours a day, almost every day of the week. It was obviously directed towards people with resources and primarily men. Um, and it, it also involved uh, corporal punishment, which we, which we don't believe in today. But there are still, I think, many virtues in, in that model of education that are, um, I guess I would say, being overlooked in, in terms of the, some of the current educational philosophies that are, that are dominant in the United States. So just to go back to that autonomy-freedom dynamic, I think that, I think that uh, a way a lot of students and educators think about autonomy and freedom it, uh, positions them as kind of opposites, as if they're um, polarities in some way, that, that you can either have one or the other. You either have uh, total freedom in the classroom or you have total structure in the classroom. And I think that, that in the best circumstances, the model is something that oscillates between uh, those two things, that it's kind of a both and rather than an, than yeah. an either or, that you're, you're finding ways to, again, use structure to enable autonomy, or you're finding ways to, uh, the other example that I bring up in the essay about Shakespeare's education is, is he, part of his education entailed very strict imitation, um, imitating Latin yeah. models, translating them into English, translating them back into Latin, and then comparing the original Latin to that double translated the Latin, the Latin that went back into English, to English and then back into Latin again. That looks really, really rigid to us. It is very rigid. But paradoxically, that, was, that kind of practice was the very practice that enabled a whole generation of great writers to learn how to write with incredible fluency in English. So, but I was trying to do exactly what you're describing. Um, think about a lot of those things that we consider oppositions as being yeah. um, kind of false oppositions, and rather uh, enabling things that are that are mutually enabling. I don't know if that if that makes sense or that accords with part of what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, on, on this on this show, I use it. Yeah, I use the term polarities in a in a technical sense from uh, leadership coaching. That, that there's a, a writer called Barry Johnson who has a and he's writing another book uh, about managing polarities and recognizes these opposites as needing each other, individual work, teamwork, autonomy, uh, autonomy structure, on and on and on, um, that, that these – we oftentimes view one as a solution to the shadow of the other, yes. and we might be stuck in the shadow, and so the other part looks great, but when we go too far in the other direction, the other yes. – the other one has a shadow, and so how do we how do we get the best of both worlds, and how does that change culturally and historically over time? What you know, as 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 cultures change, as things evolve, the balance or the what uh, what polar how we might manage polarities is is different. Say in an era like the fifties, where it was mm-hmm. where large hierarchical organizations were the norm, versus today when. Everyone wants to be the next Steve Jobs and create the great new entrepreneurial firm of the, of, of the century. So there's there are differences of, as to how these polarities get managed, but they always need each other. Is the sense in which I use the term? Yeah, they're mutually they're they're in a way they're kind of two sides of the same coin, or they're they're mutually reinforcing. But I think you're right that they can kind of get out of balance. That we that you tend to hypervalue one at a certain stage in an educational um, moment, and that. 
and sometimes you look for the, for correcting it, you you end up overcorrecting it and and yeah. losing the the good things that you had on the on the one end of the spectrum or the one end end of the polarity to use your your term there. So yeah. Um, so but again, and part of the occasion for the lecture then too is my my concern. And this is the this is a fact that the students that are enrolling in college right now have really known nothing other than uh, a very testing oriented, a very assessment oriented education because No Child Left Behind was passed in. 2001, and though it's been superseded um, by the Every Student Succeeds Act, there the, the model is still fairly the same. It, that the way we, the, the priorities that we have about the way education is conducted now um, at the primary and secondary level is is very different than it was in the 1990s. And the students that are enrolling into post-secondary education now, they've, they've known nothing other than that model, which is very um, end-driven. It's very test-driven. And uh, I think we're seeing a lot of the consequences of that at the at the post secondary level as as that generation is maturing and and coming to college. Well, and and we can pr- we can probably view the history of that as a as again a reaction to mm-hmm. a lack of standards, then going too far in the other direction and demanding that it all be held according to standards. And 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 yes, but so. Actually, so in, in in the piece, I, and I thought it was nice how you opened it. That okay, you've been subjected to this, and that part of what you you in talking to the students, you said that you you've been missing um, a complete education. Um, what what's the sense of how did you mean the the sense uh, of complete education? What was your what well, was your the, intent there? The complete education, the you know the the quotation that I'm lifting from there is from a, a student essay by. Martin Luther King Jr. that he wrote mm. at Morehouse at age 18, and there, in particular, he was he was talking about a complete education as both having uh, kind of worthy objects upon which to concentrate, as well as uh, worthy objectives um, that you need both the power of concentration and you need good objectives. And I, I think that that sense of completeness, or even you know, the title of your book, "The Whole New Engineer," I think that sense of wholeness is something that is it's. Uh, it's very hard to articulate, and it's it's very hard to um, describe as being something different than what we have now. But I think either wholeness or completeness is something that is uh, it's been lost partly in the, in the in the transition to the educational reforms that we've have or we've had over the last couple of decades. So um, the sense of wholeness or completeness in terms of seeing the interrelation between disciplines, uh, the sense of wholeness and completeness yep. between seeing interrelation between generations and uh, generations of students as well as students connected to adults and that there's a complex continuity between stages of learning across your life. I think, I, I really think that the overall, it's an unintended effect, but the overall effect of the assessment-driven pedagogy is that it tends to um, and make very fragmentary and, and uh, fractured approaches to knowledge. That even something as as well intentioned as the core knowledge program, which is again meant to be a correction to the No Child Left Behind um, structures, the core knowledge program seems like it still falls into that trap of breaking everything down into kind of atomistic units, rather than breaking bits of knowledge down into small units, rather than thinking more holistically about about the way knowledge works and about the way curiosity works and about the way inquiry works. And again, I think as I was reading The Whole New Engineer as well as your manifesto uh, for Big Beacon, a lot of what you're saying strikes me as similar to my, my sense of um, some of the challenges and difficulties that are endemic to um, educational policies and reforms right now, that, that, that lost sense of joy, that lost sense of 
curiosity, the 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 lack of the sense of the the, the greater creative endeavor that that learning entails. Those those all sound very familiar to me, and things that it sounds like you're trying to yeah. address as well. Yeah, and I want to come back to this. But let's take a little break, and and we'll come back and uh, talk a little bit more about this wholeness. And you started to allude to you know, some of it's exogenous, but but some of it's about how the academy's evolved itself. And I, I want to come back and talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit. This is Big Beacon Radio with our our special special guest uh, Scott Newstock, and uh, stay with us, and, and we want to talk some more about. Um, this, this idea of a more complete education in the next segment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates Incorporated. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution at 3joy.com. And uh, you can ask our guest, uh, Scott Newstock, uh, or, uh, questions about what we're talking about at, uh, on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. So, uh, Scott, before the break, we were, um, we were talking about the sense of, uh, of complete education that came from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr.'s. Uh, it's interesting how a number of guests on the show who tell stories about Dr. King, but but anyway, so the well, uh, his notion of thinker, and he, yes, he's a powerful thinker who clearly, you know, he thought that this was all connected. That the the lack of access to education is a denial of a human birthright, and it's a, it's a civil right. So it's it's not surprising really that that people keep on coming back to him in in part because he meditated so deeply and and extensively and continually on on philosophy of freedom and and philosophy of education. Yeah, and. And so we were talking uh, at the end of the hour, the sense of loss of, of completeness and, and this, the sense of outcomes-driven uh, education, assessment-driven education. Um, 
there's a uh, we during the break we were talking about how the end of of your article uh, thinking like Shakespeare talked about the role of of craft and mm-hmm. um, and of course that's a subject near and dear to the heart of uh, this this show be, be the origins mm-hmm. of this show being an engineering education so um, how in what ways uh, is is craft missing or what role does it does it have in uh, educate higher education in the 21st century. Well, let's just again thinking about um, outcomes-driven education or assessment-driven education. The 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 model tends to be fixated upon a, a vision of utility that is usually immediate and and therefore very short-sighted. Which is not to say that education mm-hmm. and and learning doesn't doesn't have long-term utility. That of, that of course that's why we do everything that we do is for the long-term utility of developing your mind and developing your curiosity and developing your imagination and your eloquence and your ability to formulate problems. Those are all, but those are all long-term things that emerge out of the, the difficult and kind of arduous practice in the, in the moment. And it seems like that long-term utility is the thing that's getting either cut off or short-circuited by the fixation on short-term, um, short-term outcomes. So, you know, one way that I've, I've tried to, to articulate what what Shakespeare education what Shakespeare's education would have been like both in his classroom as a as a young boy as well as in the collaborative environment of his theater is to think about that that craft model or the apprenticeship model which is you know it requires a an environment you're, where you're working with other people who know more than you do and that you you know it takes time it's not something that can happen immediately and it it takes practice and it, it takes practice doing lots of different kinds of things, so that way you can eventually demonstrate that you have, as we say, mastered the craft. That you, you know, our word masterpiece is not really meant to be the, originally masterpiece meant the thing that you did at the end of your apprenticeship to prove that you had mastered the craft. It didn't necessarily mean the culmination of your entire career. It, it really meant the thing that showed that now you're ready to do the real work, which is be a craftsperson that is able to produce these objects in the world. And it's, it's, it's really intriguing to think about the fact that uh, 16th century medieval and Renaissance craft making and a, a guild work and apprentice work was very similar to the kind of work that happened in the, the theater in the 16th century. So um, working alongside other people who know more than you do, learning from them, emulating them, imitating yeah. them, working to try to do what they do, competing with them, and eventually surpassing them. Um, those, are all, those are all very accurate ways to describe not only being a, a wheelwright, someone who makes wheels, or a, a shipwright, someone who makes ships, but a playwright, someone who makes plays. It's a, it's a process of making. It's a, our, our word for poetry goes back to poesis, a, a kind of a making, an imaginative making. And so I think the more you can think about writing and thinking as being active things that you need to do, the more you can, uh, active things that you need to hone practices that you need to hone, the more you can think about the overall craft is the craft of thought. That's a, a, a great phrase by the medieval intellectual historian Mary Carruthers. That the craft of thought is the thing that you, that you practice. It takes time, and you, you do it in, a, in an intense, close, collaborative environment with other people. Yeah, nice. And actually, uh, neither, I have two sons, and neither one uh, followed in the family business. One, one uh-huh. uh, did uh, theater undergraduate, uh, and, and the other did um, music and history at another uh, college that changed lives, uh, Wabash College. And uh-huh. um, and so it's so it's uh, but this idea that um, 
for the the one who went into theater, I constantly um, actually fighting with him over the value of his education. I said, "Look, man, you've you've learned how to do all these artful things in the context of working with people." Uh, mm-hmm. and so now he's going off and getting a computer science degree. I said, "You're that's going to be." unbelievably helpful to mm-hmm. you once you're out in the world doing that in this different um, discipline of craft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, abs- I absolutely agree. I mean, that, that I've heard some uh, people talk about that as kind of intellectual cross-training, that you, you're able to, mm. if you're able to do work, intensive work in one field, that makes you better prepared to do intensive work in another field, in part because you've, you've stretched your imagination, you've, you've pushed yourself, you've learned how to work with other people. And, the, and the, as you're saying, I think you're hinting that the, the fields of music and, and theater and the performing arts, they, they still follow that craft model that is, still, that is still a deeply collaborative and demanding environment to this, to this day. I think that, that's not, uh, that that model doesn't really carry through into our primary and secondary and, and often post-secondary education uh, still. I mean, one of the, the other piece that, that uh, I shared with you is uh, a, a plea for close learning, um, which was written at the height of the kind of MOOC mania yep. about three years ago here. Um, so it's a little bit dated because the, I think some of that excitement has worn off as the, as the realities of, of MOOC completion rates have, have become more clear. But the, um, the, the connection, I think, to the craft environment model is the sense of the, there is, there's still great virtue in meeting in person and, and working with someone else in a, in a, in a common space, um, whether that's in a, a science laboratory or in a computer lab or an artistic studio or in a writing classroom, that there, there are many, many things that happen in that, that human exchange of learning that, that don't yet or cannot yet happen in online learning environments. I mean, online learning environments are, uh, there's, they're very good for certain kinds of things. They're certainly good at scale. Sure. Um, yeah. and they're, they're very good for conveying information in the same way that a textbook is very good at conveying information, but the, the human element of, of motivation and, um, and the dynamic uh, in- interaction of, of two people or, or 20 people or 50 people in a room together, that's, that's the thing that, is, that seems to be missing to me. Yeah, well, and, and unfortunately in the academy, we don't even have really very good language to to talk about what's missing. I think actually right. the theater example is really an interesting one because they actually do. They they talk about presence. They talk about authenticity yes. of emotion. And and we're basically, you know, we're stuck with reason. I think the one of the <laughs> not so great legacies of, of the subsequent interpretation of Athens uh, has has been that it's that reason is 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 the is the driver and it's all in the head but but mm-hmm. but life is a you know life is a, a perf- it's a performance sport and you show up in a body and and you show up um, uh, you show up in head but you show up in heart as much and and to, to the extent that we're not doing such a hot job in the, in those dimensions um, with in the academy is is worrisome. We do we do we do well in segments of the academy, but they're mm-hmm. they're silos and isolated from the rest of the academy. No, I agree. And that sense of embodied knowledge and the in the dynamic of 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 thinking alongside other people or thinking in in close proximity to other people, I think that that is. I, I concur. I think it's a hard thing to articulate. I think it sounds a little bit um, foggy in a way, but I think it's a very real thing. 
and I, I can attest to it, we're, we're really lucky at Rhodes where we, um, we've been able to develop a, a good working relationship with a, a terrific director-actor from England named Nick Hutchison, and we brought him over a number of times to work with our, our students. And um, la- just last fall, we had him on campus uh, doing a series of workshops about producing comedy and, and uh, how different it is to read those plays on the page and then to enact them with other human bodies in time, mm-hmm. in space together, and then ultimately to perform those before a visible audience. One of the things that Nick comes back to repeatedly is that the Shakespearean theater is is interacting with the visible audience. These are these are not initially plays that are performed indoors with artificial lights and darkened seats, but rather outdoors with daylight where you're able to see faces and you're able to see people scowling or smiling or snorting or getting <laughs> bored and you're able to um, interact with them. And I think that in that working with him is really just an extraordinary opportunity for my students, but also for me too, to, to think really hard about um, the way that 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 mode of learning and interaction does carry over um, even into the the, the classroom. Um, that that embodied dynamic, I think, is really uh, extraordinary. And, and it, I find that one of the one of the influences on me after I left the university was taking training as a leadership coach. And coaching um, is is very intentional around mm-hmm. different aspects of being human. So the, there's a fair amount of talk about body and presence and leadership presence and and seeking influences from uh, people with specialized uh, knowledge and practice, say in theater or the martial arts or, or um, emotional, you know, various uh, people who um, are masters of, of um, uh, being able to reflect on their emotions and and uh, mind uh, mindfulness practices, and we we seem unable to that that level of integration to go there is is again it's it's countercultural. It's not what the academy. Um, it's really not what the academy's been about for much of its history. It it has been about kind of this ice this um, this this perceived legacy, anyways of of uh, Aristotelian categorization of knowledge and and uh, somewhere along it it wasn't I don't think it was that in the days of Athens but the translation to modern times uh, through the Middle Ages and into the well even into the period that you're talking about in the Shakespeare article seems like it, it something got lost in translation and it got you know the okay so we've been living in as embodied human beings got that now the important part is to to, to get to get it right uh, with our brains yeah i mean there's and, also the model too that the again i think this does go back to the issue is is education only knowledge transfer or is yes. it is it that and something more and it's the something more that's the very hard part to articulate um but i think i i think if you step back and said is it only knowledge transfer i think most people would say well it can't be only that because you could get that only from a textbook. So, uh, if it was if it, if learning Greek or learning chemistry or learning Sanskrit were only about the transfer of knowledge, then uh, why why would you not just why doesn't everyone pick up a textbook and and take that on? It's it's something much more dynamic about the the human level of um, of of learning from each other and and watching each other and being attentive to each other. Um, but it's it, it is. It is a, it is a hard thing to articulate. Um, it is it does seem like a uh, an elusive thing to articulate. And that and part of the point that I made in the essay about close learning was just saying, look, there there have been many earlier models where someone has said 
great, we have this new technology and we can finally mass distribute knowledge to people from a distance. And um, the, the joke that I begin on was looking back at an 1885 moment when that same kind of optimism was that people were using for MOOCs was, was being used to talk about correspondence courses that you could um, get, get over face-to-face education and you could have thousands of people that are geographically dispersed to enroll in courses and this would be good for business too. And that's, that, that keeps on happening. That's happened with the advent of radio and that happened with the advent of television and early um, computing. And it seems like we keep forgetting the, the human element and the, and the embodied element that still um, that still leads to that part of that completeness or that wholeness that we're talking about. Yeah, I, li- I really like the uh, quote that you had at the beginning of your uh, your piece on uh, close close learning. Um, um, but in the words of one prominent ac- expert, the average distance learner quote knows more of the subject and knows it better yeah. than the student who has covered the same ground in the class classroom unquote indeed quote the day is coming when the work done will be greater in amount than done in the classrooms of our colleges um unquote and then you say riley the future of education was finally here and of course finally, that's, yes <laughs> that's 1885 that that's yep. being yeah so it's no a, I, it's, it's, a, it's a, a good it's a joke. powerful dream isn't it it's a, i mean and part of it is very noble it's part of it is a very progressive dream which is that um you know education is expensive and it it it, it is still restricted to people with resources at every stage in the educational ladder. And so the, I, I admire and I respect and I, I definitely want to encourage that progressive impulse to, to universalize access to education. I think the, the way to do it, though, is not to universalize the knowledge distribution aspect. That already exists. That If, if someone wanted to learn anything, they could go and pick up that textbook or, or, or attend, uh, enroll in a MOOC or whatever it might be. It's, it's the infrastructure of the, the human environment that is lacking for most people, whether that's, that's poverty or, or students that are hungry in school or um, classes that are overcrowded or schools with poor facilities. That's the, that's the infrastructure. That's the human element that we, that we still, um, still need to attend to. And we, and we want to think that there's some kind of silver bullet or a shortcut that suddenly this will be the magic thing that will universalize access to education, but that it keeps on forgetting the human element. And the human element is costly. It takes time. It's laborious. It's, it's a lot of hard work. Um, but I, again, that gets back to the apprenticeship model, which is that that's, that tends to be the way people learn is, is in that kind of craft, craft environment. And it is, it is expensive. It, is, it does take time. Well, it doesn't. It, it actually it doesn't. It, and it, and sometimes it doesn't. And and there's this when when I hear stories about MOOCs, I'm almost never interested in the the placing of the lectures or the classroom materials online. That's not ever the interesting part. So we've had people mm-hmm. who have run. Actually, we've had a guest repeatedly who's who runs the largest MOOC has about a million people in mm-hmm. in a MOOC called Learning How to Learn. And the interesting stories aren't the the content. The interesting stories are about how people self-organize to do the right. craft piece in the it, with a where where the one to a million isn't going to isn't going to work. That person at the center can't can't be the um, can't be the moderator, but they the the self-organization of the the small number of people who actually do finish is is the is the interesting part as well as the. The other interesting part I find is the different institutional arrangements. So rather than thinking of our schools as all in, uh, independent uh, entities, the the MOOCs have 
helped us realize that we can be in, interdependent and have common offerings and things and, and are seeking the institutional arrangements for, for doing so among previously separate organizations. I think the institutional piece and then the emotional cultural piece that evolves around the MOOCs are the interesting part. The rest of it, it's not rubbish, mm-hmm. but it's, but as you, as you, I think rightly point out, it's not new and, and we're constantly calling it, it, it's, it's new, um, um, uh, maybe in, 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 in quality, it's not new in kind. Well, there's a great, great moment in Shakespeare's Tempest where, uh, Prospero introduces his daughter Miranda to uh, other men, and she's really surprised. That's where she she says, "Oh, brave new world that has such creatures in it." And then Prospero, her father, quips, "Well, tis new to thee that everybody, other people knew about this, but you thought you thought this was the first time that you'd ever seen this." So it, maybe this is one of those examples of "tis new to thee." Yeah. So let's. I, I think in the next segment we want to take a uh, look at where all this goes, and and uh, I, I think we agree uh, analytically about. Uh, in many ways about where we are, but um, what are, what are, uh, we're, we're, we're both concerned educators. Uh, mm-hmm. What are some of the trends? What, what's happening? What, and maybe to the extent that we can say, what do we think should happen in the next segment? How's that sound? That would be great. All right. Let's, let's, um, let's do that. So um, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, uh, Scott Newstock. And in the next segment, we're going to take a look into the crystal ball and see if we can see what higher education might become. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon itself. Join us this fall for a set of free webinars on 21st century leadership and change acceleration in higher education. Watch bigbeacon.org for details or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And so we're uh, rejoined in this final segment by uh, with Scott, uh, Scott, Scott Newstock. And we were 
been talking about a um, number of pieces that he's uh, written about about education. And, and Scott, one of the pieces that um, I liked, and we talked briefly about uh, uh, Dr. King, but in, in a, I was taken with uh, your piece, The Crafts of, of Freedom. And so help, tie, help us tie that to education and where education's been and where it, where it needs to head. Sure. Well, just to set the scene here for a moment, you know, I teach in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where Dr. King was assassinated in 1968. And on the night before his assassination, he spoke at Bishop Mason Temple here in Memphis to address the striking sanitation workers. And that this is the famous mountaintop speech that um, that King gives. The, the figure of the mountaintop is the uses the figure of Moses um, being able to climb to the the peak but not being able to being able to see the promised land but not being able to go into the promised land so king makes a kind of analogy there a, an encouraging analogy saying you know i might not get there with you but um but i've i've seen the promised land and i know that you will that you will get there eventually and i always get choked up by that speech and it's it's a very powerful speech i mean that it feels disturbingly um uh, prescient on his on his side um it, he's he's trying to be optimistic in a very bleak uh, moment things are not going well with the movement and um and it's it's almost as as if he knew that he were coming to a close but trying to encourage his followers to to go on but when when I finally sat down to try to think about why the speech is is so powerful why is in it beyond why his whole career is so powerful and why the the whole movement is so um demanding of us is that that the speech is such a rhetorical marvel um the, like all of his speeches are, you know, he's, he's, he comes from a, a preaching background, um, which is heavy, heavily invested in the history of rhetoric. And um, in, in one way that's very Shakespearean, I would say that, that um, King's education or the history of, of that kind of preaching resembles Shakespeare's education is the way in which you pick, up, you pick up certain kinds of set pieces along the way, you pick up certain ideas and concepts that then you end up recycling and revising across your entire career. Um, so one of the things I say in the Shakespeare piece is the the word inventio is a word that we would think we would translate as invention, making up something from scratch. But for the rhetorical tradition, inventio really meant an inventory of the stuff you already know, the things you already know, and what would be most suitable to this occasion. So um, that's one thing that Shakespeare does through his whole career is goes back to the things that he learned in order to recycle them and repurpose them for new circumstances. That's definitely what King was doing all the time in his in the rhetoric yes. of his speeches, was using things that he had learned both in his education at Morehouse and in his graduate education and um, throughout his reading, throughout his life. Um, so the speech, you know, a lot of the parts of the speech are things that he had said before in other circumstances, but he brought them together in a really uh, remarkable way. And I, I think that the speech is a model of, of rhetorical eloquence in, in that it's also calling for Again, universal education and and the arduous proce- process of being a citizen in an unjust society. So the, the the title of the piece, "The Crafts of Freedom," is is going back to this notion of craft. And what I'm proposing is that you know the liberal arts come from this Latin phrase "artes liberales." Um, when we hear liberal, we tend to think politically liberal, and when we hear arts, we tend to think about the performing arts. And neither of those fully captures. Yeah. how broad the liberal arts are were initially envisioned to be and how they ought to be. So if you think about the liberal arts initially as the skills or the faculties or the capabilities that a free person was supposed to have in ancient Rome and in medieval and renaissance Europe, that to me captures a 
a, a much more broad sense of what liberal learning could be. And so if you translate liberal as relating to freedom, liber, and if, if you tra- translate arts as relating to crafts, then you come up with that phrase, the crafts of freedom. The, the work that you do in any disciplined environment is designed to make you a, a more powerful, a more complete, a more free person. Um, and I think that that is a, if there's anything that's kind of an overarching way to tie together all of these points that I'm making is that this kind of intensive learning is really designed for the, you know, ultimate human freedom and, and participation in a, a civic democracy. And that's something that should be, that should be universal. That kind of access to um, speaking well, thinking well, and being an active citizen should be something that is available to everyone. And it's clearly not, and it never has been, but we, we still should fight for that and still think that that's something that everyone should have available to them yeah Yeah. and so yeah and so how i guess you know so how do we um and and the flip side of that is that you know when we start the discussion of inspiration from uh greece and 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 rome the free man portion of that is an important part and and they're hidden underneath that especially from an engineer's eyes is the Mm -hmm. idea that with those who actually make things are lower class and and so there's a there's a class distinction that's 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 hidden in Mm -hmm. i think all of liberal education that's bothersome uh, from my perspective and i I think Mm -hmm. that one of the things that we see culturally now in in the coming in the the makers movement and the celebration of design with companies like Apple and so forth is that making mm-hmm. has become culturally kind of cool and on a par with other kinds of of thinking so i so that the that elevation i think is a is is a is a positive positive thing for education going forward it's still um I still think we have a ways to go in terms of thinking about craft or or, or techne yeah. um, as as being on a par with with other kinds of knowledge. But I, I think that's um, that kind. Of, we've had people come on the show with liberal arts backgrounds talking about um, the need for, especially in the technological society that we live in. You know, we have people who don't actually un, you know technology may as well be some form of magic as as um, mm-hmm. as something that's so uh, pervasive a force in our lives for for mm-hmm. better or for worse but but I, I think that I think that one of the one of the trends is that the that the elevation of practical things um, is a positive is a positive thing I, on the other hand we've got this sense of um, you know the liberal arts fell sway to the compartmentalization of corporations and other large organizations and so some of the uh, some of the grand synthesis that we might have viewed in older visions of liberal arts is just seems like uh, seem it's further back than a buggy whip I mean so it, <laughs> I think you know so uh, the idea that that a, a group of, of humanities faculty could agree on much of anything from different departments is <laughs> is is, uh, pro- is problematic. So some of some of that ancient tradition that we call on has has been lost as well. I'm, anyway, I'm just kind of rambling here, but I guess I'd, I'd no, like I your uh, I mean, like one, your reflections. Um, yeah, I mean, as you're thinking uh, again, you were you were kind of talking about the the scientific revolution in the the 17th century as as partly being the origin of the fracturing of knowledge into discrete units and the emergence of dis- 
disciplinary forms of knowledge in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, one, you know, one thing to, I mean, I, I don't want to over-idealize tutor education. Again, it has many, many, many drawbacks and things that we would never want to return to. But I do think that um, it, it, if you just recall that a lot of the people that we admire most in the history of science were themselves deeply trained in uh, memorizing Latin and being fluent in Latin or Galileo's own work as being a great painter was, was part of his being a great scientist, which was part of his being a great thinker. It was not a separate activity. It was, it was part of his overall uh, goal of, of inquiring about and describing the world in, in the most comprehensive and compelling way that he could. He's also a great writer and a great rhetorician too. So I think, I mean, again, I think this accords with your call in the whole new engineer to not to act as if you need to add um, this course or take away that course to any curriculum, but rather thinking much more broadly and synthetically about the way that knowledge works in in general. I guess I'm, again, it's hard. I'm circling around here too, because it's very hard to talk about this. But I think the more you look at, the more you were reminded of people who made great breakthroughs yeah. in in engineering, in, in creation, um, Brunelleschi, Galileo, uh, figures that were people who were not trained separately in engineering. They were trained in writing well, thinking well, um, thinking hard about mathematics, having that craft work of working on site, um, working in the construction of a dome or working in the um, refining of a, a, a telescope and making the lenses so that they would magnify as much as you wanted them to. Those are very, um, those are things, activities and practices that cross disciplines. And I think that that's something that we, we value for all of our citizens, and, and, and we would want to model more and more at every stage of, of education. Yeah, and, and you know, some of, um, you know, some of the, um, no, I think there's a, I think there's a, a, a larger um, conversation here about, you know, so as, as uh, technology and science um, emerged, then than uh, things like the success of physics in in um, ca- uh, characterizing the physical world um, mm-hmm. and the role of mathematics and and the ways in which that then determines status in um, and and uh, what people aspired to as as a model for knowledge and, and essentially geometry uh, Stephen Tolman's uh, point mm-hmm. in a return to reason things like that it just seems like there's this we're I think we're massively we re- we've got these uh, this ebb and flow of different influences and we're sort of back to the future of a broader education as 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 being necessary for the world that we now inhabit in a in a way that actually seems different than say 50 years ago we've just got a couple of minutes left I wish we had more uh, more time Scott but uh, uh, how can people find out more about uh, your writing, your speaking, your uh, your public intellectual kind of work? So I, I teach at Rhodes College, and uh, all, all faculty at Rhodes College have a public profile. So the Rhodes website is r-h-o-d-e-s dot e-d-u, and then slash my last name, Newstock, N-E-W-S-T-O-K. And my email contact information is on there as well as my, my phone number. If anyone would like to reach me, I'd, I'd love to be in, in contact. That's great, and I appreciate your your coming on the show, and and uh, really um, um, enjoyed the pieces that I read in our conversation today. And uh, maybe we can get get you on the show again to have this kind of um, broad uh, 
conversation again. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And I, I enjoyed reading your book. And it, it, again, I was in, encouraged to see things that you're calling for are chiming with, with my, own, my own concerns and concerns that I've heard expressed by all kinds of different people, fellow educators at the, the secondary and primary levels and, and fellow professors across the country. So I'm, I'm very encouraged. Thanks, Scott. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Uh, special thanks to our, our guest, uh, S- Scott Newstock from Rhodes College, and um, help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. And join us after the show at uh, hashtag Big Beacon to interact with uh, Emma Schoenfellner and myself on Twitter. And uh, join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.